From the LA Times Studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Jen Yamato. And I'm Frank Shaw. This week on episode 16 of our podcast, we're joined by Congressman Mark Takano, a Democrat representing California's 41st district in Riverside. He'll talk to us about the massive protests around the country demanding racial justice. This is the generation of reckoning, and the reckoning has to come before the reconciliation. So I think we are finally in a place where we can reckon. We'll also talk about what it was like to run for office as a gay Asian man in the 90s and the conversations he had with his parents before deciding to run. So let's get started. Asian Enough is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Hello Tushy. Did you know it takes 37 gallons of water to make one roll of toilet paper? Make a difference with Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. How have you been doing in these strange and unforeseeable times? I've been doing okay. I mean, I have been self-isolating here in Riverside. My office here in Riverside and Washington, I've ordered all the staff to do their work from home. I planted a little garden because I'm, I usually have to travel a lot in the month of August. And I'm trying to grow some Crenshaw melons What's so special about Crenshaw melons is that uh, they are what my grandfather grew um, after World War II in the Coachella Valley in Thermal, California. But I, it's a very special specialty kind of melon that uh, you kind of have to know melons to know that it that it's way better than cantaloupe. I love that. That's beautiful. I'm so curious, what is a Crenshaw melon and what does it taste like? Like, what's the color of it? The shape of it is, it's more like a football shape. It's, it's, a, it's a hybrid between a cantaloupe and something else. I don't remember what it is. But it, it's got a far more delicate flesh. It, once you've had a Crenshaw melon that's ripe, I think you're kind of spoiled because I don't think you want to go back to cantaloupe. <laughs> I want to take you back to when you first started running for office in the 90s. It was a time where your opponents would use open appeals to homophobia and smears against you. But then when you ran in 2012, you won by quite a large margin, nearly 20 points. Uh, what changed in the country, in, in Riverside County, and, and for you personally in that time? By 1994, I was taken very, very seriously. Uh, I wasn't taken so seriously in 1992. In, in addition... Uh, the incumbent who had just been elected in 1982 had gotten involved in a, a scandal. Uh, it was a sex scandal. And in 1994, as I would sweep the primary in June of that year, uh, I had raised more money, actually, than the incumbent um, at that point. That, that should give you some idea of like how grave it seemed for the incumbent. The Republicans obviously were concerned they used everything in their arsenal that they could, including an accusation that I was gay. It it first surfaced with a very right-wing senator, a state senator named Ray Haynes, who was at a 
an event that had a bunch of religious leaders and pastors. And he said um, to that group, I don't know about you, uh, but I don't want a homosexual represented us in Washington, D.C. You know, Mark Takano is a nutsoid, liberal, homosexual. You know, that became a little bit of an inside joke. And <laughs> never heard that insult before, nutsoid. <laughs> uh, a small, small weekly paper picked up the story, and that weekly article made its way back to Washington, D.C., and you can just imagine all the fax machines, just sort of, you know, the Republican... Uh, National Congressional Campaign Committee, the RNCC, was probably spreading that 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 story all all the way through the various venues in D.C. Meanwhile, the local daily press enterprise was now in a place where they had to do a story. A state senator had a, had accused the congressional candidate, who's a nominee, of being gay, and the next sort of part of the story was to ask me the question, is it true? And so I actually knew the reporter. I can remember her name, Joan Radovich. I could tell she was not very comfortable asking me the question. I don't, it was her job. And, you know, I, I did not answer straightforwardly. I was elliptical and oblique. And I said, well, you know, this is just my opponent's way of, of trying to evade the fact that he was in a car with a prostitute and tried to escape from the police. I didn't deny that I was gay. I just didn't say, oh, yes, I am. As it turned out, uh, that was only the beginning. Um, Barney Frank, you know, who reviewed this, you know, the situation with me, he says, well, you know, the press is still looking at this from the point of view that that you've been accused of something shameful and uh, that you've been smeared and that it's, it's somehow uh, a bad thing to be a gay person. And we we didn't really want to test being sort of out and proud in that campaign in 1994. That's wild because like you cannot you cannot imagine the same kind of thing flying in today's climate, which is, I think, a, a, a great thing that shows how, how far I think many Americans have gone that that I would hope that such a thing would not fly in the way that it was able to back then. But for you in that moment, like you're young in your career how did your, you know, your very personal experience of deciding whether or not to come out and be out coincide with the unfolding of your of your political career? Like, did you expect something like that to happen? I did. I did prepare myself that it could happen. And I consulted with my family, my mother and father. And I said, you know, my mother was still hoping that it wasn't true that I was gay. And I said, I don't think it's going to change. And I want you and dad to know that this could become an issue. And I, I don't want to go forward with running for office unless you're okay with that possibility of happening. So I had this little conversation with them. They, they both felt that I should go ahead and run. For whatever reason, that was sort of an important thing for me to get out of the way. Wow. So just to make sure I have this story clear, like, were you publicly out at the time? And if not, were you outed by your opponent at the time? I would say I wasn't dating anyone. I wasn't in a relationship. And I was kind of just, you know, this young bachelor. You know, in 1992, it was never questioned because I was never, I think, taken seriously as a as a candidate. And so nobody had to kind of try to shine a light on what was, what was my marital existence. And I would say I was pretty a discreet person, but I was, 
it wasn't a subject that my mother and father and I talked about a lot, but I, I did tell them early on that I thought it was gay. And they, they kind of had the attitude of, well, you know, don't decide that yet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would say that I was somewhat paralyzed on what I was going to do with my career. My intention as a teenager was to seek a, a political career. But, you know, 80s was the, when I came of age in my 20s, was the AIDS epidemic is starting to rage. And I began to have doubts about whether or not I could succeed, let alone succeed in, in Riverside. For whatever reason, it never felt right for me to try and establish myself in another community. And I think part of it was I always felt that it was a, an advantage to kind of tap into my family's roots here and the network of relationships that they had. And as, as it turned out, I, that was a, the right thing to do because I think uh, my, my parents had grown up in the community as well and my brothers and that that all starts to, you know, have its benefits as you're running for office. So you kind of had to choose a little bit between settling somewhere that, you know, is more friendly to gay men or staying close to your family and and you picked kind of staying in Riverside County. I thought about trying to move to a place that had an established gay community, whether it was San Francisco or West Hollywood or more urban areas. And, you know, I, <laughs> I got to be careful how to say this, but it's, it's like what kind of held me back is I thought there was a lot of gay people that had the gay gene of you know, far wittier than I ever could be. And I couldn't ever compete. Because, yeah, and then, you know, you have all the very talented gay people kind of leaving their hometowns or whatever and going to places like San Francisco or West Hollywood or, uh, and, and they're just enormously articulate and, and witty. I said, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's, at least I don't have to compete with all the gay people in Riverside. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, Riverside County, I think it's interesting because it looks like a lot of counties across America right now, you know, rapidly growing immigrant population, you know, majority minority demographic profile. You know, what are kind of the most pressing issues that that counties like Riverside face? And, you know, how did growing up here kind of inform your worldview? Well, let's let's say that to answer part of your earlier question, that's a part of what happened between 1992 and 2012 is the community became far more diverse. The complexion and the complexions of the community changed in that time. There was always a strong Latino community here. The high school I went to just had just a handful of Asians. The Inland Empire, to me, is, is it draws people who are trying to make it. It, it draws uh, people who are looking for affordable housing that's better housing. And so... Over time, it started to draw people from South LA, and we have, you know, a very robust African American community here. Geography, in a way, is destiny. I'm very thankful I did not get elected in the geography that, I, as I knew it in 1992, I would have been a someone struggling with how to present myself, you know, as a gay person. I would have been struggling with a district. That would have been far more, you know, on the edge of um, the kind of person that I think I've emerged into. Well, that certainly is something that we definitely want to talk about. But first, I want to go back to something you mentioned, this idea of geography as destiny. It's not just place, right? But it's time and place. 
And particularly for you, it's it's really interesting to to think about the ways that you may have been influenced by your family's experiences. I am also Japanese American. My parents and grandparents were in internment camps during World War II. And I wonder if you could share a little bit of, of what was your family's experience of incarceration during the war and how did that then influence you and the way you see the world and the way you then approach your political life? I thought about that question a lot. And so my, my mother and father and my grandparents, like yours, were in internment camps. Uh, my father's family is from Washington State. My mother's family actually is from the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, I think they, as my mother tells it, that they, that, that the uh, truck farming business that they were in was building momentum and it was quite a blow from my grandfather in his 20s, early 30s to have to see all that um, vanish. And he, I don't think he was somebody who went <laughs> very peacefully is what I, <laughs> is what I, is what I later heard. You might know about the controversy over whether the Japanese American Citizens League was an adequate advocate for those that were interned. So my grandfather was decidedly someone that thought that the Japanese American League had sold out uh, Japanese Americans. And they were both American-born. My Sakamoto, my mother's family, the Sakamoto family, my paternal grandfather was the, was the Nisei. He immigrated around 1916. I mean, if you look at the structural racism embedded in the law, I mean, he couldn't buy property. Uh, he wouldn't be able to marry until his late 30s. But, you know, there was that whole issue of uh, uh, birth citizenship. Birth citizenship for women was not stable up until 1922 for white women. And it wouldn't get more stable for non white women until uh, 1931 or 32. And, um, and he, he was able to buy property in the name of his wife. Before the war. So, of course, when they were incarcerated, they probably lost a lot of that property. They lost all of it. They couldn't pay their property taxes. Uh, my grandfather took me to that place on my very first plane ride from California to visit the Seattle-Tacoma Bellevue families, he took me to the site where his greenhouses were. And on the site at the time was a Holiday Inn. That Holiday Inn is now a, a Red Lion Inn. I mean, if you do the math today, or like the appraisal of that property today with a hotel on it, maybe we've estimated maybe 25 million. That, you know, to me, that was a, it was a very clear example. Now, like I didn't piece this together until I was much older. And I, I did it sort of in between my 1994 loss and the time I would run again. It was sort of figuring out who I was. Now, that makes a lot of sense because so often we have to ask our elders about those World War II experiences, about the camp experiences. I think about how Japanese-American internment is not even something that is widely taught in schools and mainstream schools in America, much like a lot of people recently had learned for the first time about the the Tulsa Race Massacre or Black Wall Street. Some people learned about it for the first time from watching Watchmen on HBO, you know? So a lot of this was not widely taught, and we had to go seek it out, right? We are, as an immigrant country, there is a kind of feeling that you forget about your past and you press forward. But the price we pay 
for that is the succeeding generations lose touch with the struggle. I think about my mother, my grandfather and grandmother having to be interned. I think of the stress of a young mother like my grandmother Takahashi. Uh, at the end of the war, they were among the last to leave Tule Lake. They were interned at Tule Lake. My grandfather intended at that point, I think oh, he wanted to repatriate to Japan. My grandmother was American-born. She had three brothers that served in the 442nd Infantry Battalion, one of whom dies in combat. In fact, uh, my uncle Monso died, I think, in April, 75 years ago. have a tush, then this ad is for you. It's hard to believe that when we go to the bathroom in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean bottoms to everyone. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy Bidet pays for itself in a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't wipe at all. Even the best two-ply just can't cut it when it comes to a hands-free bathroom experience. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean bottom with every flush. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com enough. You know, we wanted to talk with you about the Supreme Court decision that at this point was just a few weeks ago. They voted to extend workplace discrimination protections to the LGBTQ community, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexuality, if I'm rendering that correctly. Uh, what did that decision mean to you and, and, and why was it so important? For many, many years, predating marriage equality, the prime objective of the community was to pass in Congress the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, otherwise known as ENDA. And ENDA was still the objective when I was elected in 2012. Uh, and that changed when Hobby Lobby decision uh, came about, and there was some rethinking about whether passing ENDA with all sorts of you know religious carve-outs and exceptions uh, might not be a weaker strategy than the court strategy that was happening. I have to say I was preparing myself for the worst, but I also had an inkling that, that the court would rule uh, in favor of the plaintiffs, the LGBTQ plaintiffs. But what it means is that anywhere in our country, in the territories of the United States, can a person now be denied his or her job or be fired because of who they are? And this is a huge, huge victory for the community. And um, uh, it's a big deal. Well, that actually leads to uh, another question we had that has directly to do with like your perspective as a, a congressperson. You're addressing so many of these very necessary issues 
in America all at once. Of course, we are talking to you in a time of great unrest as protests continue nationwide in the name of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other black people killed by police. Defunding the police is a huge conversation out there right now, which I'm sure everybody wants to know, you know, like where our elected officials stand. Um, And even within the Asian American community, we're having more and more conversations that really never happened before about confronting anti-blackness within our own communities. Um, Meanwhile, I mean, you mentioned President Trump. He days ago used the term Kung Flu. We keep seeing these racist terms perpetuated by the highest office. So all of these things happening, what do you feel like you can do about all of this as a congressperson in terms of all of these necessary reckonings with race that we are having and need to have in America right now? Well, this is a reckoning. This is a moment of reckoning, and I hope a prolonged moment of reckoning. And part of that reckoning is is coming to know history in a personal way. And I, I hope that every American will explore history in that way. That is the beginnings of empathy and understanding, is to, is to really be brave and, and take a look at that uh, history. I, as a member of Congress and as someone who's an elected official, I, I think my role to take the opening that we see here uh, and to take advantage of that opening and what it's going to mean for me is making sure we pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would ban chokeholds, which would ban no-knock warrants, which would create a national registry of uh, data that would keep tabs on police officers with disciplinary records uh, so they can't transfer from agency to agency. And finally, but most importantly, addressing the doctrine of qualified immunity. And qualified immunity, it's a completely judicial construct. It was you know, devised through common law and case law. And, and bottom line, what it does is it prevents victims of police brutality from being able to hold the perpetrators accountable. The standard is just far too high, and it, it, it is virtually impossible for that sense of accountability. And that leads to a kind of conceit, I think, within police agencies that they're untouchable. This bill would not have been possible uh, without public sentiment changing, and it's not the public sentiment that was changed by what they what has been happening in the streets. But I also think Americans and white Americans and Asian Americans were awakened by this George Floyd video and that incident in a way that they weren't awakened uh, by the Eric Garner incident. And I, I do have to say that the young people in the streets have helped to foment this opening. I talk to many of the, the, the young people in the streets and they're, they're very confident that they're going to be able to keep it going. But uh, I, as a, someone who's been in politics for a while, you know, I, I hope that they, they can keep this moment going. But, I, but I, I think my experience is that there's a shelf life and that we have to act while the moment's hot. Did you know manufacturing toilet paper uses nearly 27,000 trees per day? Ouch. Literally, for the planet and your butt. It's time for the Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment. Hello Tushy cleans your bottom with a precise stream of fresh water for just $79. 
It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy Bidet pays for itself in a few months. And every Hello Tushy Bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and start eliminating waste responsibly. Go to hellotushy.com slash enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com slash enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com slash enough. Well, thank you so much for for joining us, Mark. We're we're running out of time, so I wanted to kind of take you to our last uh, segment, which is uh, bad Asian confessions. Basically, we we ask our guests to share a time or moment in their life they felt like a bad Asian in order to try to unpack our ideas about identity and how they can be a bit restrictive. So, my my bad Asian confession might be like this week that it's been three weeks since I spoke to my mom. You know, too long, I guess. Um, what? Frank, that's too long. Yeah. Three weeks. Call your mom. Yeah, well, she's busy. I'm busy. You know, I don't know. Like, we text. <laughs> um, so do you have one you could share with us, Mark? I'm going to do one that's sort of intersectional. Like, sort of, you know how there's a stereotype about gay men being sort of neat and tidy and orderly? And Japanese people in particular kind of having to be, you know, just these sort of zen-like spaces with the carefully raked gardens, and right? So I, I'm a bad sort of Gaijin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bad Gaijin uh, because if I were to turn on my camera and show you what, you know, my place looks like right now, it's a mess. And uh, I, I don't know, so within the culture, you know, the, the, I think Japanese males, or I don't care if it's Japanese-American or Japanese males, but I think they kind of have this expectation that they're going to be picked up after, you know, mm, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely the non-Marie Kondo Asian uh, over here, too. I'm, I'm also a huge mess, so got to represent for the messy Asians. <laughs> oh, I'm like the anti-Marie Kondo. I'm a hoarder. It's the opposite. <laughs> the uh, absolute opposite. Have you, you've not asked yourself whether uh, whether the things you have, uh, you know, uh, give you joy? Spark joy. <laughs> That's the problem. Everything sparks too much joy and I cannot possibly part. I also think that, you know, there's a generational backlash, right? Like the generation that comes after Marie Kondo is going to be like, no, we need stuff. I don't know. That's okay, though. You don't have to clean up for anybody. That's what I say. Unless it's to do all your new TikTok videos, because I see that you just joined TikTok. Actually, I joined TikTok mainly to do a video with the sweet feminist. Um, The sweet feminist kind of made a name for herself during the Kavanaugh hearings um, by baking these cakes with messages on them. I forget. I mean, she she was very witty and, and she was calling out the male privilege. And she expressed interest in doing a video with me and tweeting it out on Hong Kong. So we baked a cake. She showed me how to bake a cake in my Washington, D.C. kitchen and we decorated it. And we put on top of the cake free Hong Kong and we made an icing design of a yellow umbrella, you know, the symbol of like uh, protest in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, because, you know, TikTok was 
actively trying to stamp out these sneaky political messages that would gain, you know, we, we didn't quite get viral with our message, but we were, we were trying to go, we were I mean, trying to go there. We're seeing all types of like new political methods of activism, right? K-pop fandom, you know, TikTok, uh, baking too. I, I hear uh, baking for black lives just raised millions of dollars or something today. So that's awesome. I really feel Black Lives Matter has brought about, it's strange to say this, but it, an optimism. It's a action in the streets that seems to have, you know, these young people are not, I mean, they're, they're suspicious of me. I'm an elected official, and it doesn't matter that I'm a Democrat. That doesn't get me much, because the question to me is, why, is why, why do you still have these people dying? And they have a point. I also have a classmate who's just posted two beautiful posts. Um, he has done his own personal family research. He's African-American. He's been able to trace some generations. And, he, he, you know, like, he has a great-grandfather that his father knew. His father knew his great-grandfather. His great-grandfather was a slave. He He has that oral history connection. His father just died, I think, at the age of 90-something. And... They're very just poignant reflections. And, you know, he just sort of, you know, speculates about how many generations does it take for people who were so completely dehumanized and their bodies, their bodies and their time were not their own. You, you think about just the obstacles that were put in the way of newly freed slaves, um, the terror of Reconstruction and Jim Crow, you, you, you just got to s- scratch beneath the surface all this to understand that. And he asked the question, how many generations will it take for, you know, the descendants of these freed slaves to be able to fully be able to experience what it means to be human? I know. And I think we're, we're it's it's incredible to to maybe think about, you know, being this generation. Maybe that's this generation. You know, uh, maybe that's the generation after us, you know, and it's 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 definitely a time to watch and a time to to kind of really pay attention to, to what's happening and, and and enjoy the sort of history that is happening. You know, so so thank you so much for for coming on, Mark. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. This is the generation of reckoning and the reckoning has to come before the reconciliation. So I think we are finally in a place where we can reckon. Okay, that's it for episode 16 of our podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Frank Shang, and by Jen Yamato. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. Come back next week. We're talking to CBS News White House correspondent Wee Jia Jang. If you like Asian Enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. So stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. And remember, if you're out there planning those quarantine gardens, 
maybe plant a Crenshaw melon, like Representative Takano. Once you've had a Crenshaw melon that's ripe, I think you're kind of spoiled because I don't think you want to go back to cantaloupe.